Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this, you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sahan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly. And faithfully, when the Lord gives us the land. Thank you, Wendy. Black family, it's so good to have you back with us. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. Isn't that great? That is wonderful. Well, we are continuing uh, in our series called Down but not out the art of the comeback. And so today, of course, we are reading about the story of Rahab. And one of the things I like about this series as we look at men and women through Scripture who, uh, by all accounts, are down, we know uh, because of the faithfulness of God, they're not out. And I love to hear about their stories because their stories are encouraging to us. And as we read the grand narrative of God's redemption plan in Scripture, we come across these men and women. And they're there to be role models for us, to to serve as examples to us in the things that they do well and in the areas that they fail and do not so well in. And I hope... 
that as we're going through this and as we're reading about these men and women that you are able to identify at least in part with different aspects of their lives. I know I can and uh, I enjoy reading about them because I see a little bit of myself and sometimes a little more of myself uh, in them than I like to admit. And so today we're talking about Rahab. I want to begin, um, I told you several weeks ago as we studied about Gideon, that was the very first Bible story that I ever heard. Well, I want to start the story of, of Rahab out with a story of my own. It was uh, one of my very first ever church staff meetings. Okay, It was in 1985. Some of you know the story. Uh, I had been a, a sheriff's deputy in L.A. County. I felt a very strong call to vocational ministry. Uh, Lori and I had been attending uh, this Christ-centered Bible teaching church in Sierra Madre, California. When I was approached by the associate pastor who asked if I wanted to help out with junior high ministry. Well, I didn't give it much thought and a couple of months went by and he came and he asked me again if I wanted to help out with junior high ministry. And he told me it was an actual staff position. Of course, I had no idea when he originally had come to me. Uh, and then he began to, to tell me that I needed to give him an answer because there were other applicants. Now, I hadn't applied for this, okay? That, that were kind of in consideration, uh, but that I was his first choice and he needed to know the answer. So Lori and I discussed it. Uh, it was a time when I was going back to school, uh, getting prepared for seminary, and um, thought, hey, you know what? It'd be great to work with junior hires. And, you know, we could use a little extra money. It wasn't much. I think it was like $500 a month back then. That was a part-time position. And we said, sure, we'll do it. And once he hired us, I asked him, well, why in the world did you pick me? Uh, there were graduates from Biola University that had a Christian education degree and training and background. And, and they applied for this position. I, I have no experience uh, teaching um, Sunday school, no experience with youth. Why in the world would you, would you want me um, to be your junior high director? And he said, well, Todd, uh, uh, you don't know our junior hires, do you? And I said, well, well, what do you mean? He said, we figured anyone that worked with hardened criminals would be perfect for our junior high group. <laughs> okay? And, and that was my first staff position uh, in a church. And I, I did that part-time, and then later on I did custodial work part-time, and, and uh, you know, it was, a, it was an adventure. Uh, there'd be times when I'd be teaching my, my junior high group, and someone would burst through the back door of the Sunday school room and say, the toilet's flooding, the toilet's flooding, do something. And there I was, kind of stuck in my custodial world and my junior high director world, right? But God knew what he was doing. Uh, and he gave me experience in just about every area of church, uh, from cleaning up bathrooms to, to working with hardened junior hires, okay? But I was in this staff meeting. It was one of my first. Uh, and, and I have to admit, there are a couple of things that I was deadly afraid of. One was that uh, when the pastor would lead a staff devotional, um, he would ask me, uh, to read the passage. Because to be honest with you, although I had known Christ for a while, I really wasn't familiar with the Bible in a way that I could just 
pick a passage and go right to it. Okay? And so I'm thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to call on me. He's going to ask me I, to turn to a, a passage, you know, some obscure book, and I can't remember where it's at. I just, oh, I mean, I would just sweat bullets. I'd please, don't call on me, don't call on me, don't call on me. Okay? And uh, you know what? If, if you can relate to that, that's a good thing. Don't worry about it. That's what the table of context, the content is for, right? You just turn there and you find the book and you go to it. All right? Don't let that discourage you. And uh, Lori said, you know, we're going to teach these junior hires. I don't know what they're teaching. I said, listen, all we have to do is be uh, one verse, one lesson ahead of them. We're going to be okay. All right? Uh, the second thing I was afraid of was they would ask me a little bit more about myself uh, or ask me what I thought about things because I was around this table with some pretty heavy-duty, godly Christian men, leaders in the church, people who I'd looked up to, and all of a sudden now I'm amongst them and asking the question, what in the world am I doing here? Do I really belong here? And I remember on that one day, one of the first staff meetings I had ever attended, uh, the pastor didn't ask me to, to read a verse. Man, I was okay. But he started with a question. He wanted to go around the table and have everybody answer that question. And here was the question. The question is, I want each of you to share um, the ways in which you are uncomfortable living in the world outside the church and the difficulty that you have mingling with people who don't know Jesus. So basically the question was to each staff member, um, how are you doing outside the church and with people who don't know Jesus yet? And then the follow-up is, and what are you doing about that? And uh, man, my heart just froze. And he went around, and I was the last one, right? I, thought, I was hoping they were going to run out of time. But they didn't. And here's what I'm thinking. They really don't know me. I'm, I'm the kid whose dad went to prison and whose mom was thrown out of church because she was married multiple times and wasn't allowed to come to church. Uh, I'm the kid who was uh, ritually abused by his alcoholic stepfather. Uh, I was the kid who was a problem child in elementary school, and by the time he got into junior high school, spent more time in the vice principal's office than he did in class. Okay? Um, I was a kid who, after school and just wanting to find a place of refuge and peace of mind, I would, I would go to the local Catholic church, and I would just sit there and be quiet and feel God's presence and feel his comfort and his safety. I was a kid that would just show up on my own to church on Sunday and heard the priest give a sermon about vocations and the next day went and knocked on the door and, and was told I could never be a priest because I didn't have Catholic pedigree. Uh, I was the kid whose campus life, Youth for Christ directors, later on would laugh and say, you were the one that we thought would be least likely end up in vocational ministry. I was the kid whose mother got sick with cancer, and through my teenage years, it was just mom and I, and I slowly watched her die, and at age 20, when she died, I crashed and burned. I was the kid who one day was so mad at God, I woke up, and I said, God, 
I've called on you. I've asked you to help me. I asked you to heal my mom. And now I've left all by myself. And God, I am so angry at you from this day forward. With every breath that I have, I want to bring dishonor and discredit your name. I was that kid. I was the one who, who spent several years angry at God, throwing a temper tantrum. The kid that got thrown out of college, academically disqualified three times. I kept coming back for more. Right? Uh, I was that kid who finally found himself in the sheriff's department and kind of got back on track. And then I was a kid that, without applying for it, was asked to come and teach junior hires. I was that kid. That was me. Okay? And so why did I dread when they came around and they, they, they wanted to know what I thought about the world outside the church and people outside the church? Because if I was going to be honest, then I was, when it came to me, this is what I told them. Well, to be honest with you, I relate more to the world and the the people in the world outside the church than I do people in the church. And to be honest with you, I find the church kind of a very uh, different place for me. Uh, I'm having to learn new language. I'm having to learn new customs. I'm having, to, I'm having to, to learn what it means to be in community with other people who are following Jesus. And quite frankly, I, I, I really don't know what that's all about yet. That was my honest answer. Okay? I mean, that's where I started. So, so what do you call the kid that was all those things? That had all those experiences? What do you call him? You call him your pastor. Now, how did that happen? Right? It happened because of a sovereign work of God in my life who placed his hand on me and guided me through a lot of stuff. But in the end, by his grace, drew me to himself and brought me to a place where I recognized I needed a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. And his shed blood on the cross cleansed me from my sin. And uh, it doesn't matter how I started life, because if any person be in Christ Jesus, they're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, The old is passing away. Behold, the new has come. And so, why do I identify with some of these people that we're studying in this, this series called Down But Not Out? I identify with them because in many ways I'm like them. In many ways, their stories are my stories. And, and the wonderful thing is that God, in the grand narrative of his plan and redemption in Scripture, invites us to join him in his word and to find our place there. And as we find our place there, we find the purpose and the plan for which he's called us to new life in Jesus Christ. Okay? So, why do I identify with Rahab? Because I was the one who grew up outside the camp of Israel. 
I was the one who was well ensconced in the fortress city of Jericho. I was the one who had heard about the mighty deeds of God, who had called on that God, and to the best of my ability, entered into relationship with God without knowing the whole story. I just knew I needed the God of Scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God incarnate, Jesus, who came to earth, right? Fully God and fully man. To die for my sins. That's all I knew I needed. And I was just trusting that somehow God would fill in the blanks. Okay? So, I've got good news for you today. It doesn't matter where you start. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter what your pedigree might be or might not be. What matters the most is that God can get a hold of your life and who can transform you and give you new life and new hope and new purpose. And so here's Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute. The scripture makes that very, very clear. And she has a house that's on the outer wall of the great fortress city of Jericho. This great city in in Canaan. The land that God promised to give to Israel. This great fortress city that had walls that were 25 feet high and, and 20 feet thick. It was thought impregnable. It had an outer wall and an inner wall, and, and in between the two walls were, uh, were wood beam supports that rose up, and on them houses were built. And it was one of these walls near the gate to the city that Rahab, the, quote, innkeeper slash prostitute, lived. Now, the Canaanites were very sensuous people. In fact, If uh, you were a prostitute, there were a couple levels at which you might be identified. One was the the temple prostitutes whose uh, acts of sensuality were actually considered to be uh, acts of worship of the Canaanite gods. And they were kind of held in high esteem because, after all, what they were doing was spiritual in nature. Then you had the everyday, run-of-the-mill, common prostitute uh, who was just in it for profit for themselves. They had a much lower standing and reputation. You know what I mean? That was Rahab. And uh, she had this house that was on the wall near the gate. And that was a convenient place because people from all over would come and go. And men of all kinds of stature and reputation would find their way into her house. Now, Israel is camped out on the Jordan The torch of leadership, or the mantle of leadership, has been passed from Moses to Joshua. And now they are poised to cross the Jordan and take the land that God had promised. The 40 years of wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, are over. And Joshua, the great commander, sends two spies to spy out the land. And they go into this great city, fortress city called Jericho. And while they're there, they're found out. And the king 
this is like a Jericho is like a city state, and these city states, these large community cities, had their own king. And the king of Jericho found out, and he sent a message to Rahab and said, "Listen, I understand that the Israelites are spying out the land, and there are two spies that are in your house." Now she's faced with a crisis of belief. What is she going to do? Is she going to turn them over to the king? Or is she going to come, become complicit in Israel's plan of spying out the great fortress city and ultimately leading to its downfall? What's she going to do? Well, the scripture tells us in the narrative we just read that she had heard about the reputation of the God of Israel. She had heard about how they had crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was wiped out. She had heard about how their armies had decimated the, the armies of the kings of the Amorites. And now they're poised to take the land. And she acknowledges and she confesses to the two spies, I know that your God is God he is the, the true God, the God of heaven and earth. Now that is a declaration, that is a profession of faith that is profound from a woman who's a prostitute who lives in a culture that worships many false gods. And so long before those two spies entered her house, God was at work in her heart, in her life. You see that? And believe me, when God sends you out into the world... And you encounter people that you think ostensibly don't know Jesus yet. You can count on this, that God's at work. And God's preparing their hearts and their lives to receive what he has for you to give them. And that's exactly what's going on in this story. Okay? And so, she redirects the king's men and says, well, they were here but they left just before the gates closed in the evening. I don't know where they went. They went that away. Why don't you go follow them? In the meantime, she, had the, she hid the two spies on the roof of her house that was covered uh, with, with the branches of flax seed. Okay? And she tells them what she did. And it says, now, you need to go and you need to hide out in the hills. Because this great city was built up on these foothills, these hills. And you need to hide there for three days and then you need to go. But, tell me, please, that when you come and the armies of Israel come, that you'll spare me and my family. And they made an agreement. They said, yes, if you promise not to give our identity away or tell the king's men where we went, we, or, uh, we will make sure that you're spared. And they gave her um, directions to take a scarlet cord and hang it from the window. And that is how the men of the armies of Israel would know that they weren't to touch her, her family, or her belongings inside her house. Okay? It's interesting, isn't it? Scarlet. A scarlet cord. Uh, here, here's a woman whose sins are a scarlet Right? And she's hanging this scarlet cord. And of course, we know the scripture says, uh, though uh, our sins 
or scarlet like crimson, right? Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the crimson, the red blood of Jesus, washes us pure as snow. Well, she's true to their word, her word. They're, they're true to their word. And the day comes when the siege of the great city of Jericho meets its climax. And on that last day of the siege, the Lord has the armies and the peoples, led by the worshipers, by the way, okay, go around the city seven times. You've, you've read the story. And the seventh time, the trumpets blow, and they declare that the victory is theirs, that God has given it to them, and the walls come down. And, and everything is destroyed. And the people inside are decimated, except for Rahab and her family and her belongings. Now, we see in this story a beautiful picture of God's grace, uh, the work of salvation in the life of this woman and ultimately her family. I want to take you just through a trail of Scripture to see Rahab and how she's mentioned and the way she's mentioned throughout the Scripture. So if you look at Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 23, it says, So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Now look at verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute. You see that? Rahab, the who? The prostitute. Okay. With her family and all that belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day day. Interesting. So they spared her. They brought her outside the camp. That would have been customary. Uh, any proselyte to the Jewish faith or religion had a place or a space, if you will, uh, on the outside while their faith was tested and they were found trustworthy. Then they were invited inside. And that's what happens here. So we see that. So she goes from being a prostitute in the great pagan city of Jericho to be rescued, placed outside the camp, and then, what? Brought inside the camp. Now, check this out. Hebrews chapter 11. Do you know that in this chapter, the great hall of faith in Scripture... There are only two women that are mentioned by name. One is Sarah. The other is who? Rahab. Check this out. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. By faith. Okay? And there she is, held in esteem and honor, among all the women that could have been mentioned 
Only two by name in the Hall of Faith, and one of them is Rahab. I'm telling you, it's not where you start that counts. It's where you finish. Okay? It gets better. Just flip over to the next uh, book, James. James, in his discussion about faith, in this chapter 2, he talks about Abraham. And, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, in chapter 2 of the book of James, it, it really is getting at the point that faith without works is dead. It doesn't matter what you say you believe, it's how you live. And it is your faith that is lived out. That really is faith that's living. And faith that God is looking for. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves. But as a result of the work of God in our life, our lives should reflect His work. Our gratitude with our obedience. And so in this chapter, it talks about Abraham. Then it moves from Abraham to Rahab. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And then it goes on. Crescendoing with her as the example to say... As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Don't you see this? Here was the outsider. Uh, Here's the one that got off to a a rough start. Uh, Here is the one that the people on the inside couldn't necessarily identify with because of her life on the outside. And in the end, she's very much in the center of God's plan of salvation. Now, why is she called repeatedly Rahab the prostitute? Rahab the harlot? It's not because God, who inspired the authors of Scripture, wanted to to have Rahab's face rubbed in her past. It was because God wanted to put Rahab on display as an example of how anyone with a past could have a new present and a new future. Okay? Now, are you ready? It gets better. It does. It gets better. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. This is the, the, uh, the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ through Joseph. And in Matthew, what this is intended to do is to demonstrate and show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Okay? Upon which he will sit forever and ever. Do you see who's in the lineage? Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and who was Jesse's son? David. 
we find no less than five women in this genealogy. Two are Gentiles, and three have questionable character. And you know what it culminates in? The throne of King Jesus. And in that lineage, in Matthew chapter 1, in these verses, we find prostitutes, we find adulterers, we find people of questionable character, we find heroes and outstanding people. We find them all, but you know what they have in common? The same thing that you and I have in common. That the one who sits on the throne of David, Jesus the Messiah, is their Savior. And He's our Savior too. Rahab. May she serve as a reminder to all of us that it's not how you start, it's how you end. And may she serve, and may the story of the two spies serve to encourage us that if we're going to be a church that brings Christ hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world, we need to recognize that God is sending us outside the camp. And He's prepared people. They've heard about Him. They know about Him. And now we get the opportunity to be a part of God's plan of drawing them into the camp. Okay? And may we never, ever, regardless of where you came from, regardless of where you started, may we ever, ever forget that at a point in time we were all beggars looking for bread. And that bread is the bread of life. Jesus. And as we remember where we came from, may we be compelled to go to those whom God intends to give a new life and a new future. That's our call. Amen.